Well, folks, you know that a couple of weeks ago we started a new series through the book of Esther, and a summer series will be in that book all summer long, going verse by verse through the book. And one of the unique things I told you last time we were together about the book of Esther is that God is missing in the book. You can read the whole book, and the word God never occurs anywhere in the book. God never appears, He never speaks. He doesn't even send a prophet to speak on his behalf. Uh, Read the whole book and there's no worship in the book. There's nothing about faith in the book. Uh, There's nothing about the temple. There's not a mention of heaven or hell. There's nothing about sacrifices or Jerusalem. No one even prays in this book. If I could summarize it this way, Esther is a book where there's nothing very religious about it at all. At least on the surface. This is a book that's not very religious. And that's especially true when you open the book and read the first chapter. So if you haven't already, go to the first chapter of Esther. You say, well, where is it? Uh, Find Psalms in the middle of your Bible. Go to the left, and you'll hit Job, and then go to the left again, and you'll find Esther. There's nothing very religious about this book, but God's fingerprints are all over it. This book opens, though, with something that you wouldn't expect, perhaps, in, in a Bible book. The book opens with a drunken party in the palace of King Xerxes. In fact, I'll just go ahead and tell you this. Here's what happens in the first chapter. The king gets wasted and he throws away his marriage. Uh, That's that's the summary of chapter 1. The king gets wasted and he throws away his marriage. Kind of sounds like current day stuff, doesn't it? And that's the way the book opens. It opens with this party, this pagan party in the palace... It's the kind of place and the circumstance where you would never expect to find God. And here's what we're going to learn in this first chapter. God is working even in those places where we would never expect Him to be. That's what we're going to learn today. God's working even in those places we'd never expect Him to be. Let's see how the book opens. Esther chapter 1 verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The author wants his readers to understand that the story we are about to read actually happened. This is not a fairy tale. It's not something made up. This is a story that actually happened. Now, your Bible translation may refer to him as Ahasuerus, which is his Hebrew name. The NIV translates that Xerxes, which is the Greek transliteration of his Persian name. Xerxes is the Persian king who reigned from 486 to uh, 465 B.C. And at that time, he was one of the most powerful men in the world. Probably one of the two of the most powerful men in the world. He ruled over his Persian empire that was massive. Look at it in the text. Verse 1, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. Now, look up here on the map. We're going to put a map up and let you see how big this Persian empire was. His Persian empire stretched from current-day Pakistan all the way over to the Sudan. He was in charge of a large part of the entire Middle East, including what we would call today Israel. So, I think that we're giving this reference for two reasons. First of all, the author wants you to understand this is a very, very powerful king. The second thing that I think the author wants us to understand is this, that the Jews, later in the book, when they they are to be exterminated, the Jews had nowhere to hide. He, He ruled the entire world at that time, or that part of the world at least, including what we would call Israel today. 
So the Jews that were going to be exterminated later in the book, they absolutely had nowhere to hide because Persia covered everywhere. Now, let's read verse 2. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And you can see this on the map, which is right in the middle. There were actually four capital cities that he ruled from. Susa was one of those, kind of right in the middle of everything. Verse 3, And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. In the third year of his reign, here's what happened. Xerxes, even though he ruled over all of this, he decided he wanted more. He decided this wasn't enough. He wanted to rule over Greece as well. That was the other world power in his day, and he wanted to conquer Greece. Then he would be the most powerful man in the world. And so that was his plan. And part of his reasoning was this. His father, Darius, tried to conquer Greece and was killed. So he wanted to avenge his father's death and to expand his kingdom. And so in order to do this, he's going to need a lot of help. And so he calls in verse 3, look who, who comes to this banquet that he gives. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet. By the way, there's a lot of banquets in the book of Esther, and this is the first one. But he gave a banquet for all of his, notice who's there, all of his nobles and officials. The, what kind of leaders is mentioned there? The what? The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were, were present. You see, he brought all of these military people together, and he gave them this big party. And folks, I want you to know it was the party to end all parties. In fact, if you look in verse 4, tell me how long the party lasts. 180 days. You've been to a party like that? 180 days. Do you know how long 180 days is? Six months. Six months. A six-month party. Now, probably, he brought people from different regions to the party, kind of rotated them in and out during the six months, but it was a six-month-long party. Why in the world? What was he trying to accomplish? Well, look at verse 4. For a full 180 days, here's what he did. Don't miss this. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. You see... Xerxes wanted to impress these guys. He wanted to impress his nobles and his military leaders with his wealth and with his power. Remember, he was trying to consolidate the entire world. He wanted to conquer the world, and he was going to need their help. And so he brought together all of the leaders from all of these provinces because he knew he needed their loyalty to defeat Greece. Now, now guys, ladies, you businessmen and women, you understand this principle. Because I know that you take clients out on expensive dinners to exclusive restaurants because you're trying to impress them and kind of win their loyalty. You're trying to get that account. You're trying to convince them to come to your side. And so, so you, you've got this expense account and you take people out to these exclusive dinners for uh, expensive dinners and exclusive places and you're just trying to win their loyalty. That, that's what, that's, uh, that's what uh, Xerxes was doing. Brought in all of these people for this incredible banquet and he held this party for six months to show his wealth so that he could make, he wanted to demonstrate, he could make good on his promise. He wanted to demonstrate that perhaps he might reward those who rallied with him. But the party doesn't end there. Look at verse 5. When these days were over, that is, when these six months were over, the king gave a banquet lasting how long, church? Seven days. 
in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. But notice who's at this party. For all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. He invited other folks, common folks, folks like you and me. He invited the city folk, if you will, the people who lived around the palace. The people who saw all of those people go up to the palace for six months. He invited the town people to come in and be to see everything that he had. And notice why. Look at verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 6. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver. You got any of those in your house? Couches of gold and silver. Look at this. Couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of, of whatever that is, and some kind of marble and mother of pearl and other costly stones. I mean, this guy was throwing a party. And he wanted to emphasize his wealth and his power to the common folk because he would need their allegiance too. He's going to be the most powerful man in the world and he wanted to show the people who lived around him, I've got the means to do it. I have the power and the authority and the wealth to accomplish this and I just want you to be part of it. So he brings them in for that special privilege. You know, back, I don't remember exactly when it was, but last fall sometime, I had the opportunity to have a, a brief meeting with the governor, uh, me and a couple other pastors. And, and it's the first time or the first time in a long time that I'd been at the state house. And I remember walking around looking at everything in the state capitol. It just fascinated me how beautiful it is and how ornate it is and how you know, stately it is. I mean, it looks like the kind of place you'd think a capital ought to look. And that's what Xerxes had. He had the kind of palace you would think a king of the most powerful men in the world would have. Gold and silver and everything was ornate and beautiful. And he wanted everybody to see it. But we're told in verse 7 and 8, there was a lot of drinking going on at this party, as you might expect. A pagan king throwing a long party, there's got to be alcohol involved, right? And so indeed there was. Verse 7. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, handmade, of course. And the royal wine, not just the cheap wine, the royal wine, notice this next word, was, what's that next word? Abundant. The royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Here's the way it went down. Normally in that day, when, when the kings had a banquet, here's what would happen. Whenever the king would drink, the this, this people would drink. But you wouldn't just be drinking anytime you wanted to. You watched what the king did, and when the king would drink, you would drink. But in this situation, he said, hey, we're throwing those rules out the window. You guys just drink anytime you want to. Drink all you want to. The bar is open. Open bar. Go enjoy. Drink everything you want to, anytime you want to. Don't you imagine there was a lot of drunk people there that day? Drinking as much as you want to, whenever you want to, and it's the royal wine. This was quite a party. Now, you say, Pastor, why is this in the Bible? Hang on, we'll get there eventually. But before I tell you about that, I want you to notice there's another character introduced into this story. It's in verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet. She had her own party. She gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So the men were with Xerxes in their party, acting like drunk men, and the women were in their party, having their, their time. Now, during this banquet, something embarrassing happened. It's in verse 10. On the seventh day, 
when King Xerxes was high in spirits. That is, after seven days of drinking, he was plastered. All right? So on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and they're all mentioned there, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, this kind of makes sense, especially if you're a drunk man. It's like, okay, I've showed you everything. I've showed you the beautiful palace, but the thing, this most beautiful thing I have is my wife. I mean, Vashti was a trophy wife, if there ever was one. In fact, in this verse, we're told twice that she was beautiful and she was lovely to look at, emphasizing her beauty. Now, Esther, later on in the story, when we read about Esther, Esther, is, it's only mentioned once that she was pretty, so some surmise that Vashti was even more beautiful than Esther because twice we're told she was beautiful and lovely to look at. And the king said, I got a good idea. Hey, guys, you want to see the queen? I mean, she's, she's pretty hot. I, I tell you what, you, you think all this marble and gold is good, wait till you see my, my wife. And so he gives instructions for seven eunuchs to go get her. Now, why seven? Why, why does it take seven guys to bring the queen? Because probably they're going to put her on one of those, it's called a royal litter. They're going to put her on those fancy chairs and carry her in. So she's going to make this grand entrance. And he gives the instruction in, in verse 10 uh, or verse 11 that she is supposed to wear her crown. Look what it says in verse 10. To bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty. Now, scholars have debated what that really means. Some think that when it says to display her beauty, wearing her royal crown, it means that she, were, she was to come unveiled. That she was not to have the, the common Persian veil over her head. That she was to come unveiled, wearing her crown and showing off her beauty. Some scholars said, no, it was worse than that. She was to come into that place wearing only her crown. Remember, these guys are drunk. She used to come in wearing only her crown. Now, we don't know which it is, but we do know this. When Vashti got the invitation, she was less than pleased. Look at what happens in verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. It's interesting what happens here. Vashti, because she considered the summons a... a, an affront to her dignity, and rightly so. She refuses. She says, I, I'm not going. Don't you, ima- don't you imagine those seven eunuchs were looking at each other like, what, 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 what are we going to do? And she says, I'm not going. Well, what are we? I don't care what you tell them, but I'm not going. So they go back, and they tell Xerxes. They come in, and they're not carrying the, the royal litter, and they don't have her, and they're coming in, and you tell them. No, you tell them. I'm not telling them. You tell them. And somebody eventually says, um, <clears throat> she said no. King burned with anger. You know why? Think about it. Here's the most powerful man in the world, at least one of the most powerful men in the world brought his nobles and military officials together to say, I I need you to obey my command and march toward Greece. And he can't even get his wife to obey him. How embarrassing is that? He can't even control his own wife. How's he going to control the armies? He, He can't even get his wife to obey him. How's he going to be the ruler of the world? He can't even be the ruler in his own household. 
And, and so, what's he going to do? <laughs> well, the story goes from bad to worse. It's an interesting story. It goes from bad to worse. Let's pick it up in verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with a wise man who understood the times and were closest to the king. And they're listed there. And it says they had special access to the king and were, high, were highest in the kingdom. Verse 15, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, he says, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the province of King Xerxes. For the, king, the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they'll despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct, will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There'll be no end of disrespect and discord. You know what he said? He said, king, you think you got problems? When our wives hear what your wife did, none of our wives will obey us. I mean, it's just, it's going to be hard at home, king. You're going to have to do something about this. And so, they say, okay, what are we going to do? Verse 19, therefore, if it pleases the king, Here's Mimucan's suggestion. If it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persian media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Translation, she wouldn't come to see you? Then make it so that she never can. Make it so that she never will again. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukin proposed, and he sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler of his own house. Interesting story, isn't it? But why is it in the Bible? Why in the world would God start the book of Esther with this story about this pagan king and this drunken party? This doesn't sound very spiritual. It doesn't sound very religious. It doesn't sound like something that ought to be in your Bible. Let me pause and explain it to you this way. You know, when we think of God's miracles, especially in the Old Testament, we often think of amazing displays of power. Parting the Red Sea, the sun standing still, the walls of Jericho falling down. What we don't realize is that these mighty acts of God, though they were miraculous and incredible, but these mighty acts of God are linked together through a long series, a chain of events that seemingly are insignificant and ordinary. You see, God's miracles don't always have to look like miracles to be a miracle. He can work through a drunken party as easily as he can work through a burning bush. Verse 19 is the key to it all. The second half of the verse says this, Let the king give her a royal position to someone else who is better than she. I can summarize it in four words. Exit Vashti, enter Esther. You see, Esther was a young Jewish girl who at this time had no idea what was happening. 
She was living her own life as a Jewish young lady. Had no idea what was going on in the palace except that there was a drunken party up there. Had no clue what might happen in her future. Her parents had died. She was living uh, with a relative who was kind of her overseer, kind of caretaker. She didn't have much of a promising future. She was just a young, unknown Jewish lady. Now the question is this, when you get to the end of the book, how did this young, unknown Jewish lady become the queen of Persia? How does this lady not only become the queen of Persia, but she ultimately becomes the lady who saves the entire Jewish race? Because later in the book, King Xerxes issues a command that the entire, gener- uh, uh, the, the entire group of Jews be executed, be eliminated, exterminated. He was the Hitler of his day. He gave the order to wipe out all the Jews in all 127 provinces, including the land we call today Israel. That all the Jews were to be exterminated, and yet, this young, unknown, maybe teenage lady, Jewish lady, ends up being the queen of Persia who saves the entire Jewish race. And oh, by the way, Not only did she save the entire Jewish race, but the Savior of the world came through that Jewish race. You see what's in the balance? Now, how does she get from where she is, unknown, young, no future ahead, to, to Queen of Persia, saving the entire Jewish race? How in the world does she get there? Here's what I want you to learn. God is working in those places where you'd never expect Him to be. God is working in chapter 1 at a drunken party as surely as He was working in chapter 4 when they said, maybe you've been brought to such a time as this. You see, God's miracles don't always have to look like miracles to be a miracle. I'm not saying God put on the party. I'm not saying God threw the party. Don't take it that way. It's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is this. Almighty God, because He is sovereign and because He he can work providentially, He can use anything, anywhere, at any time, and anyone to move forward His divine plan. He is Lord and He is God. He's not auditioning for the part. He really is God. And because He really is God, He can use anything for His plan and purposes, even a drunken party. I mean, that party was a royal mess. Here was a king who who got drunk and lost his marriage. It was a royal mess. How could anything good come out of that? Haven't you asked that about yourself sometimes or about somebody you know? Man, this is a royal mess I've made. How can anything good come out of this? I've made a royal mess of my marriage. How can anything good come out of this? I've ruined my life with drugs or alcohol. How can anything good come out of this? Because there is a God who is sovereign. And this God who is sovereign can work at any time, at any place, with anybody to accomplish His his will. You see, God doesn't have to be on center stage with a spotlight to work a miracle. What if? What if God is always at work? See, everything in chapter 1 is secular, isn't it? 
Everything in chapter 1 is completely secular. A wild party, lots of drinking with people who do, who do not know God, people who never even think about God, and people who do stupid things, and yet God is moving through it all to accomplish and move forward His perfect plan. How does He do that? Go to Proverbs chapter 21, and I'll show you exactly how He does it. Go over to the right, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. You see, there was a king named Xerxes, but there was one who was king of kings. It was the Lord God. And though Xerxes was the most powerful man in the world, or at least one of the most powerful men in the world, he was nothing compared to the king of kings the Sovereign Lord and God. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that God is asleep when it comes to the nations of the world. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that God's out of touch with all the carnal stuff happening in our world. Don't fall asleep and think that that God sits in heaven wringing His hands over who might be our ruler today or tomorrow or next year. You write it down and you remember it. God is always at work. God is always going to accomplish His plan and His will. You see, don't make the mistake of thinking that that God's only working if it's something big and flashy. Don't make the mistake of thinking that, that God only uses religious people in religious places. God is working even in those places where you would never expect Him to be. God is working even in Esther chapter 1. So what if this week, when you face things that are not godly, and you are in places that it just feels uncomfortable, and you think, this is a royal mess. What if this week you, you just reminded yourself this, of this? God is always working. God's always working. Maybe you don't like this policy or this plan or whatever happens. Just remind yourself, God is always working. When your heart is broken by something that happens, you just got to remind yourself, God's always working. When you're frustrated by something that happens to you this week, just remind yourself, God is always working. And when it looks like evil is winning, you remind yourself, Ultimately, it will not win. Because there is one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He is always working sovereignly and providentially to accomplish and push forward His will. God is always working. See, here's what I want you to know before we leave today. A miracle doesn't have to look like a miracle to be a miracle. Doesn't always have to be a burning bush. Doesn't always have to be parting the waters of the Red Sea. Doesn't always have to be the walls of Jericho falling down. Sometimes it can be a drunken party. Because God shows up where you'd never expect Him to be. I want to close by looking at verse 19 again. Esther chapter 1, verse 19. Don't miss this. 
Second half of the verse. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Esther had no idea what was about to happen. But God was working to open a door that she would never be able to open herself. She had no idea what was about to happen until later in the story, someone says to her, perhaps, perhaps you've been brought to this position for such a time as this. Just because it's not flashy, don't think God's not working in your life. Just because it's not always spectacular, don't feel like God's not working in your life. Perhaps He's working when you don't even realize it. Let's pray about that. Father, I thank You that You are indeed Lord and You are God and there is none other. And though the, the leaders of the world have their plans, You ultimately are in charge. And you sovereignly, providentially bring about your purpose and your plan in our lives. And thank you that you are indeed involved in our lives. I want to pray, Father, for anyone here today who have, has made a royal mess of their life. A royal mess of their family or their marriage. And, and they just can't believe anything good can ever happen through this. I pray that you would show them that you can work for your good. So we today lean on trust in the fact that Romans 8.28 is true. We believe today that indeed, Lord, you can, you can work all things together for good. For those who love you and have been called according to your purpose. We ask you to do it again. Not just in the pages of Esther. But do it again in our lives. Do it again in our homes. Do it again in our marriages. And may Jesus ultimately be glorified in it all. It's in his name I pray. Amen.